Well, welcome again to, uh, to week number six in our sermon series, To the Ends of the Earth. Can you believe it's already six weeks into the new year? Uh, why don't we begin with a word of prayer and we'll, we'll dive in right, right into the middle of the book of Acts. Let's pray. God, what a, what a privilege it is this morning to come before you, to open your word, to, um, to see Paul and Barnabas give of themselves, sacrifice of themselves for your sake to be witnesses. What powerful examples for us. And so as we read your word, uh, may it speak to us, may it challenge us, may it encourage us and remind us that we are in this together, that we are your church, we are your witnesses here in Calgary, in this moment of time, at this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we are jumping in right into the middle of the book of Acts. We're right in the middle of chapter 14. Chapter 14 is right in the middle of uh, the entire book of Acts. And uh, that, that's something to sort of celebrate. We've been going at this for a long time. Remember way back in 2020 when our first sermon series uh, on the book of Acts took place. And we said, we will get to the ends of the earth. Well, this is sort of the, the perfect opportunity to talk about the ends of the earth because we see something actually new and different in the middle of chapter 14 that we're going to get to. Before that, just a really quick recap of where we've been so far. So in this sermon series, To the Ends of the Earth, we've looked at how the church has sort of regrouped, formed a strong, healthy church in the city of Antioch, which uh, prayed and prayerfully sent out by the Spirit two missionaries. Well, two missionaries and an apprentice. Barnabas was sort of the lead in the, on the journey at the beginning. Uh, with Saul, who has now sort of gone by his other Roman name, Paul. And they went with John Mark, who was uh, Barnabas's nephew. Uh, John Mark left them halfway through the journey. They first went to Cyprus, then they sailed north into what is sometimes called Asia Minor, uh, Anatolia, it's this large peninsula, it's now modern-day Turkey. And they went right to the, to the center of Asia Minor. The province is called Galatia. And the first city they went to there was uh, Pisidian Antioch, so a different Antioch from the one they left from. John Mark had gone home already by this point. And then uh, they were in Iconium. So last week we looked at uh, their adventures in Iconium. And we knew that they left Iconium, they went sort of southeast, and now they're landing in a city called Lystra. A little bit more rural, a little bit more uh, rustic in this area. At the end of, of the message today, they'll go to the city of Derby, which is even smaller, even more rural. And we actually don't learn much about Derby at all and what happens in Derby. We'll leave that for next week. Now, the interesting thing is they've been to these two sort of larger centers in Asia Minor in Galatia. And the same pattern has, has kind of unfolded in both places. Paul and Barnabas have um, begun by going directly to the synagogue. And when they get to the synagogue, they, they um, hear the readings from what we would call the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures. And then they have the opportunity to stand up and share. And they share about how those scriptures, those prophecies, are pointing toward this promised Messiah named Jesus. And they share a little bit of the gospel message from Jesus. This is met with... Um, shall we say, mixed results in both cities. There, there is positive fruit that comes of this. There are uh, people who respond in faith to the grace that's called out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are also some who don't take too kindly to it. And usually these are sort of key leaders, some of the Jewish leaders in both of these centers, and they stir up, they rile up other uh, Jews and non-Jews alike, and then they push Paul and Barnabas out of the city. They expel them. They kick them out, thrust them out of their area. And Paul and Barnabas get back up, dust themselves off, and move on to the next center. So something a little bit different happens here in Lystra. I give you that background to remind you of this sort of repetitive pattern that we see because we're not going to see it in Lystra. Something changes here, and it's actually pretty important to identify. So let's begin in verse 8. Of chapter 14. In Lystra, by the way, I should say, in Lystra, Lystra is the place where Paul will find uh, one of his future mentees. So Barnabas has been mentoring Paul along the way. Remember, it says that he put him under his wing when Paul was a new Christian, just Saul at that time. Uh, Lystra is where Timothy is from. And we know that 
Timothy will become a, sort of a, a mentee to Paul. Paul will be his mentor later in his career. Uh, we don't hear about Timothy here in this story, but it's helpful to sort of remind ourselves that Paul would have been interacting with some of these families, and certainly probably Timothy's mother or grandmother, who he references later in their incredible faith. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. Not lame, but lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, if, um, if this sounds a little bit familiar to you, first of all, you have a great memory because you're remembering all the way back to 2020. Um, it really sort of echoes, it, it, it's really um, almost word for word, the healing narrative of Acts chapter 3. Only in Acts chapter 3, it wasn't Paul that was doing the healing, it was Peter, another apostle. And Peter was doing this healing of this, this man who was born lame, uh, but he wasn't in Lystra, of course, he was in Jerusalem, and he was at the temple. But uh, some of the details are remarkable, just how similar they are, including the man jumping up at the end. A man who had never walked from birth is now leaping for joy because he's been healed. The only thing is uh, the follow-up or the follow-through, the, the reaction to the miracle couldn't be more different between Acts 3 and Acts 14. So I, w- I want to stop here and just make a, a few notes on a few things. First of all, you, you might have noticed that the pattern's already broken, right? Paul's addressing the citizens of Lystra, but he's not in a synagogue at all. We don't really know where he is, probably some sort of town square, somewhere where people would gather, but it's, it's not a synagogue. Well, why is that? Probably because there was none in Lystra. We have no archaeological evidence that there ever was a synagogue in Lystra. In fact, we have very little evidence that there was ever uh, any sort of Jewish community of, of any substance there at all. So we don't really know why they go to Lystra, to be honest, but they're there. And we do know that um, in ancient Roman world, there needed to be at least 10 Jewish men in order to even consider constructing a synagogue in any sort of town or region, little area. So in all likelihood, there just wasn't enough Jewish men there to be able to think about constructing a synagogue. And so this becomes very important. I'm going to sort of leave it off here, but we're going to pick it up in a little bit. Paul and Barnabas have to completely adjust their approach to how they're presenting the gospel message. This is is literally new territory for them as they share. The second thing I want to bring up from this initial uh, miraculous healing is the connection between faith and healing. And, and I bring this up because, um, well, because I've, I've heard it talked about a lot. And I think it's, it's something that we really need to be careful with. So much can be made of this idea that uh, Paul looks at this man. It says he, he saw that he had faith to be healed. He, he discerned it. He had some sort of insight into this man and realized that he had faith and that Paul would speak the gospel message and proclaim through prayer that this man be healed in the name of Jesus. Now, there's a, an obvious connection here in this story. And I, I don't want to dismiss this connection. I, I'm not at all trying to say that there isn't a connection between faith and healing, because clearly Luke thinks it's important enough here to, to write it right into his account. W- what I do think we need to be careful of is trying to create some sort of universal principle that then we say can be applied at all times and all places, no matter what. Like, um, if you just have this amount of faith, if you have enough faith, then somehow God is required to heal you. He has to, right? It's like an obligation that God has. That, that's not at all the way this works. And I think we need to be very careful in trying to suggest that in, in the contemporary church, in our churches these days. So let me give you just a few scriptural passages to, to muddy the waters a little bit. Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in his hometown, it says, and it says he's amazed by their lack of faith. <laughs> Not really what you want to be amazed by. They just see him as Mary and Joseph's son, right? He's just the apprentice carpenter in the town. Oh, this man surely can't do miraculous things. And because of their lack of faith, it says... Jesus struggles to do miracles. But it it does tell us in the text that 
he can do some miracles, and he lays his hands on some, and some are healed. Even where there is a profound lack of faith, Jesus is able to do some miraculous things. Now, what about Paul himself? Remember that uh, Paul has this, this uh, illness or this, this thing that he calls his thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what it is. We've suggested in this series that maybe, maybe it's uh, malaria. It seems like maybe he, he gets some sort of illness when they're sailing from Cyprus to Asia Minor. Uh, perhaps it's, it's malaria because we know it affects his eyesight. He says to the Galatians, you know, if you could have, you would have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me when I was with you. Right? And it was because of illness that I first preached to you. So perhaps that's what's going on here. Well, surely Paul himself had an incredible amount of faith. We've seen it over and over again in our account here. But he says he prays for healing three times. But it's not granted to him. So there's faith. There's a lot of faith. But there's no healing here with Paul. So I do have a, a little bit of a universal principle that I think we should uh, be guided by. And it's not, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. No, it, it goes like this. Uh, don't judge someone else's faith when healing doesn't take place. That's a nice little ring to it. Don't judge someone else's faith when healing doesn't take place. To judge someone else's faith when healing doesn't take place after prayer is to me sort of a, an inexcusable thing. It just sort of uh, puts us as if we're in the place of God. That we can, we can discern who has faith and who doesn't. And that it's because of their lack of faith that they weren't healed. One more scriptural example. If you just flip a few pages from Mark 6 to Mark 9 in, in the Gospels, you'll find an account where Jesus' disciples are trying to heal a young boy who's demon-possessed. The, the, the demon keeps casting him down to the ground and casting him into the fire, harming him. And um, Jesus comes and they haven't been able to, to heal him. And so Jesus sort of intercedes here and he talks to the boy's father. And he says, uh, you know, do you, do you have faith? And the boy's father says, look, I have faith, but help my unbelief, right? I believe, but help my unbelief. So first off, he's admitting right up front that he doesn't have sort of maximum amount of faith. And Jesus doesn't even ask the boy at all if he has any sort of faith to be healed. Jesus does heal the boy. What he says to his followers after isn't, oh, it's because the boy didn't have enough faith. And it's certainly not because the father admitted to struggling with his belief, with his faith a little bit. No, Jesus says, it's because of your lack of prayerful faith, as in the disciples, that he wasn't able to be healed. So just a word of caution here, that these things are mysterious. Can God heal? Absolutely. Do we believe that God still can work in this way? Miraculous healings? Yes, absolutely we do. But we don't pretend to sort of have the corner on the market on how God does that or when God is going to do that. We humbly come to him with all the faith we can muster, with all the prayer that we can manage, and we offer it up to him. And then we let God be God. You know, uh, one of my favorite theologians right now is a lady by the name of Kate Bowler. She has Mennonite connections to southern Manitoba. And Chantel and I have actually had a chance to meet Kate, and she's a, a beautiful person and hilarious, actually. And I'm really uh, just getting into her latest book, but uh, one of her previous books that I've really liked is a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And it's uh, a much more personal account of Kate um, being diagnosed with cancer and her journey and just how much she struggled with um, the reasons or um, the explanations that people offered her, especially followers of Jesus. And of course, she's a strong Christian herself. She has this quote right, right in the middle where it says, uh, it, when someone is drowning, the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason. And so um, it's a book that will, yes, make you laugh and cry, but I, I do highly recommend it. And it, it especially wrestles with some of these issues that we think we have to have it all figured out. We think we have to have just the, the perfect explanation or the perfect response to something. But really, what we need to do is just be with people and love them and leave those things to God.
Okay, that was a long tangent. We're going to get back to the text here. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, that is the healing, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Excuse me. Barnabas, they called Zeus. He was probably older. Maybe, um, Maybe was showing that he was sort of the mentor of Paul in this situation. And Paul they called Hermes. Hermes was one of Zeus's sons. He was the sort of god of uh, language and writing in the Greek pantheon because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Them being Paul and Barnabas. So a, a little bit of background here I think is is helpful for us. In this region, remember they're in Galatia, and then they were in Phrygia, this sub-region, and now they're in Lyconia down here. So it, it explicitly mentions here that they're speaking in the Lyconian dialect, dialect of Greek. Paul and Barnabas almost certainly would not have understood this Lyconian dialect. They would have spoken Koine Greek, more you know Palestinian area. And, um, and so they, there was probably a, a language barrier, first of all, of what was going on. But to the background, So, Zeus and Hermes in Leicester. There's a a long history here that goes back uh, hundreds of years. But um, this myth is told as recent as sort of less than a generation before Paul and Barnabas show up in Leicester. Or I should say it's retold. Ovid writes it in his Metamorphoses. That in Leicester, in the region of Leicester, at one point, Zeus and Hermes come down from Olympus down to uh, in the form of sort of poor peasants, beggars, if you will, just to test the, the people of Lystra. And they go door to door and they knock and they're looking for, for hospitality and they're looking for charity and they're looking to see just how they'll react. And every single house in Lystra rejects Zeus and Hermes until they get just outside the city and they knock on the door of this elderly couple. And this elderly couple takes them in and gives them hospitality and feeds them and makes sure that they're okay. Well, as sort of retribution, because that's what Greek gods do, they like retribution, uh, Zeus and Hermes wipe out all the rest of the houses. They kill everyone else in Lystra. And then they make this old man and this old woman into trees. I'm not sure if that's what they wanted or they just did that. And out front of their house, and then they make their house into this temple of Zeus. So this is sort of the myth of where this, this local little temple to Zeus uh, came about, just outside the city of Lystra. So Zeus and Hermes have become these, um, almost like these patron gods, these regional gods. So of all the Greek pantheons, of all, all the, uh, the gods in the pantheon that um, Greeks worshipped, for Lystrans, or Lystrites, or whatever they're called, uh, Zeus and Hermes are like the preferred options. You know, if, if 9 out of 10 dentists prefer you to use this toothpaste, then 9 out of 10 Lystrans or Lystrites, it sounds like toothpaste either way, uh, they prefer Zeus and Hermes, right? They, they're like the home team gods, the regional gods, if you will, the crowd favorites. And the funny thing is, you know, if, if you really think about it, just how close those who are hearing the message from Paul actually are. Right? And, and Paul and Barnabas probably would have been able to pick up some words along the way. They might have got really excited. Oh, I think they're getting it. You know, they're, they're talking about God coming down in human form. Wow, I think, I think our preaching is really reaching them. I think they actually understand the gospel message. Oh, wait, what is going on here? They're a little too excited. Why do they keep bringing us bulls and cows? And why are they putting garlands around our neck? And Barnabas, oh boy, I see what's going on here. Oh no, they have made a horrible mistake, right? They think we are the gods who have come down. But you've got to wonder, right? I mean, it's been a rough journey. You think, you think, at least just for a split second, Paul and Barnabas were like, you know, let's just ride this out for a little while. This could be worse, right? I mean, I could use some grilled meat. We've been treated pretty badly. I mean, why not be treated like gods for a few days? Well, we'll clear things up a little bit later, right? Of course. Of course they don't do that. No, immediately, immediately it says they 
They tear their clothes. I'm going to read that. They run out. No, why? Why are you doing this? And their reaction, you remember, could not be more opposite. Just two chapters before, in Acts chapter 12, we read about King Agrippa I. You remember this story? Sort of a strange story inserted into the text. Agrippa goes up to Tyre, and he's wearing his, his fancy sparkly cape, remember? And he gives a speech to the residents of Tyre, and they say, this isn't the words of a man, this is the words of a god. And he does a nice little twirl, right? He doesn't reject them. He doesn't dismiss it. He embraces it. And then he's struck down dead, eaten from the inside by worms. And the text tells us it's because, it's because he didn't reject this blasphemous praise. Well, Paul and Barnabas certainly make sure that they do. You know what's interesting here, something sort of universal. Just how quickly and how often we try to make God into our image, right? As Christians, we, we proudly proclaim that our identity, our, our image is because it's been given by God. That this is a part of the creative reality of our world, that we've been created in the image of God. And yet we continue to try to manipulate God to be in our own image, that is our broken and sinful image. Or if not in our image, at least into an image of our own liking. It's so hard to move from who we think God is to who God actually is. Because we, we create these constructs. Or we put God in a box. We say he has to be like that. And so many things can inform this. Our, our upbringing, our teaching, our formation, our relationships. All of these things can, can sort of inform how we view God. But over and over again, the Bible calls us to convert, to change, to continue adapting and adjusting our conception of who God is. Because you might even have the right name for God, but you might have the wrong God. And our cultural blind spots are the worst for this, right? Because we fail to sort of see beyond the scope of our own society and our own culture. I was just reading uh, C.S. Lewis this week. He's writing an introduction to a book that's 1,700 years old. <laughs> and he says it's so important to, to read old books. You, you want to know why it's, it's most important to read old books? Because they don't have the same errors current books have. It's not that they're any smarter. It's not that we're any smarter. But we sort of have these cultural errors that we just have these blind spots we can't see out of. He says, and reading old books, books that have stood the test of time, don't have those same cultural blind spots. And so they inform those errors better. I love this line in, in, in this introduction. He says, I, I mean, books from the future would do the same thing. But unfortunately, we don't have access to books from the future yet, right? All right, back to the text. Watch how quickly Paul and Barnabas uh, go from being idolized to demonized in just a few minutes. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you, and listen to this, underline this, to turn from these worthless things to the living God. The old translations here would say, turn from these vain things. No one knows what that means. Empty. Meaningless things. Things that are void. You see, here's, here's what Paul and Barnabas recognize in their crowd. That the crowd wants something real. They want something, something tangible, something with meaning, something with purpose, something that they can plant their lives in, something with foundation. But, but all they have is these fleeting, empty idols that they're chasing after. Do you have any um, memories that no matter how low you're feeling, you can just like, you've tucked them away and you can just recall them and it'll make you laugh or it'll at least bring a smile to your face? Okay, I'm the only weird one with that. All right, anyway, so I have several of these and one of them is from my time working uh, downtown Toronto, working for the government of Ontario. So um, we were hiring new employees to sort of uh, do a similar role to what I did and I wasn't involved in the hiring process, but I got to meet 
all the potential employees before their interviews. And I remember meeting this, this one specific guy <coughs> um, because he sort of looked a little bit like he was wearing his dad's suit, was a little bit oversized, and he was carrying like an old school briefcase, but he was like 21 years old. And um, I remember thinking like, wow, it sort of looks out of place. And uh, I mean, who carries a briefcase anymore anyway? Anyway, nice guy, ended up being office mates with him. We shared an office later. So he tells this story to me after he got hired, obviously, and we're office mates. Uh, I asked him how the interview process went. He said, oh, I was sure that I wasn't going to get the job. And I said, oh, really? I, you're well qualified, and did the interview not go well? And he said, oh, no, the, the interview actually went really well. It's just that um, I brought a briefcase. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I remember. And, um, and I forgot it in the interview room after the interview. And he said, I left, and I went down, and I was almost in the subway when I remembered that I had left my briefcase, and so I had to come all the way back up. And I'm like, oh, so you were, you know, concerned about how if, if you know, they felt like you were irresponsible or something like that, that you left your briefcase, that it wouldn't be a, a good impression on, on your new bosses. He said, no, that wasn't it at all. I was worried they would open it. Oh, why were you worried they would open it? I mean, what... What was in there that you were so concerned about? Oh, nothing. It was just empty. Well, that's not true. I had taken a handful of crackers and put it in the briefcase before in case I got hungry. And the thought of my boss opening up a briefcase that someone had forgot in an interview, and when they flipped open the lid, realizing that there was just some loose crackers and nothing else in the briefcase, makes me laugh every single time I think of it. We never let him live that down, by the way. Uh, we bugged him about it forever. The idea of um, having something like that to try to look important, but really it's pointless, right? It's empty. I think actually a lot of us are carrying around empty briefcases. We're trying to look important. We're trying to fill it with meaning or purpose or value or success or money or whatever else we think we can jam in there that has ultimate value, ultimate meaning so that we can feel like this is going somewhere. This is what I'm supposed to do. Johnny Cash is one of my all-time favorite entertainers. The guy was a celebrity, a massive worldwide celebrity for half a century. His very last single. It wasn't actually one he wrote. Uh, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails wrote it and performed it first. Uh, since then, Reznor has said, nah, it's, it's Cash's song now. Because he performed it with such meaning and such heart. It's called Hurt. And I'm sure you've probably heard it before. It's a tragic song. Here's someone who for 50 years had everything in the world. Had all the success, all the popularity, all the prestige, all the money, everything he could imagine or want. The song starts, What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you can have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And the last stanza of the lyrics says, if I could start again a million miles away, I would keep myself. I would find a way. Friends, how long will we chase after the wind? How long will we seek to spend our lives, spend our very selves on emptiness, on things that don't matter, that don't last. What will it take for us to realize what is true and real, what is pure and lovely and honorable and right and excellent and worthy of praise as Paul will write to the Philippian church? All right, back to our text. Turn from these worthless things to the living God. The living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations go their own way. Yet He has not left 
himself without testimony, without witness. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So as if the, the situation wasn't precarious enough, as Paul and Barnabas are trying to talk them down from sacrificing to them, now ghosts from Christmas past are showing up from Iconium and Antioch. Those who have, who have expelled them from the region don't have anything better to do. Now they've walked, well, for the Iconiums, probably six, eight hours. For, for the Antiochians, probably two, three days at least, chasing them down. Remember last week we talked about that obsession of jealousy, how just extreme it can distract us. And it strikes you as, who would do sort of such a thing? Oh, right, yeah, Paul, right? Remember, that's how God got a hold of him. He was on the road traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians when God struck him down. The stoning that they had plotted in the city of Iconium, if you remember back in the text, finally becomes a reality in Lystra. And they hurl rocks at Paul until they think he's dead. They drag his carcass outside the city, left for the birds and the animals. It's interesting here, it says the disciples gathered around. Well, surely Barnabas did. But clearly, again, there's a positive response. Believers who will make up the, the sort of core of the early church in Lystra. Probably gathered around to pray for him. Maybe even to talk about where to bury him. When Paul sort of comes to, pops up, shakes himself off, and walks back into town. Now you've got to think, if they thought he was a Greek god before, this is only going to add to the myth and the legend of Paul in the city. I mean, what a huge flex, right? Like you just stoned me, and I'm just going to saunter back into town. I might even preach again, right? It's amazing reality. Paul will write to these churches, by the way, these churches in Galatia, this province, not long after, and at the end he'll say, look, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Th those marks would not have gone away. Those were scars. Those broken bones did not set properly. He would have had those marks for the rest of his life. Let me go back a little bit. Go back to the empty gods part. They aren't worth the briefcase you carry them in, Paul says. You need to receive the one true God. This is his message. You know, in this particular, particular series on Acts, to the ends of the earth, we've spent many Sundays, many messages, looking at what it means to have our calling as witnesses to the gospel? What does it mean to um, share the good news, to evangelize the world around us? I think this passage is one of the most important on this topic. Remember, for the very first time in the book of Acts, the audience that this message is being preached to is not one with any familiarity with the wider story of God. Isn't that interesting to think about? All the way, halfway through the book, and everyone that, that this message has been presented to is either of, of Jewish ethnic origin and would have sort of the law and the prophets, the whole grand story of God and his covenants with his people, or they were um, what, we, what we usually call God-fearers of some kind. That is, they sojourned with the Jews, on the way. They had an interest in who this God is. They knew who this God was. Or they were Samaritans, who again had sort of this, this historical background of this story. This, right here, is the first time in the book of Acts that we are encountering people, community, that has none of that. 
They don't know any of that story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No prerequisites. My brother Ryan uh, did uh, grad studies at McGill University. And McGill is in Montreal, in the province of Quebec. There's a requirement that you have to pass uh, not just a, a written language test for French, but also a spoken um, test in French. And so the way they do this is you write a, a little exam, it's kind of entry exam, and then they put you in the right level for spoken French. Well, he's really good at writing and really good at exams. And so he actually scored really high on the written exam. And they were like, oh, this is like a fluent French speaker. And so they put him in the most advanced class. So here's my brother, good old Calgary boy, knows mm, just about that much French, shows up, and the teacher is just talking pure French, like no English at all. And he's just about trying to figure out how he can excuse himself and get out of this class. And he realizes that she's looking directly at him, talking to him, and everyone in the class is looking at him. And he just has a moment of honesty and says, I'll be honest, I have no idea what you're talking about. At which point the guy next to him leans over and says, she's asking your name. He changed classes, right? I, I had a, a very similar experience when I was in 12th grade. I started in the States, and for some reason, the, the guidance counselor put me in sort of like the advanced American history class. American history class. Now, I should know some American history, right? But I just remember the teacher in the first week asking me what I knew about Lewis and Clark. And honestly, in my brain, I was like, are those people? Probably people. Maybe it's guns. Probably guns. Are they dogs? I have no idea. I have no, I have never heard of Lewis and Clark in my whole life, all right? I know now, okay. But, it, you know, it's a little bit like if you join a Zoom conversation halfway through, and you spend the last half of the Zoom conversation being like, what could I have possibly missed in the first half? Because I am so confused, and I don't know what is going on, and I don't know how they got on these topics, right? Or if you, you make some new friends, you join a new friends group, and then you spend the next 16 years of your life trying to decode all their you know, inside jokes and secret messages, right? It takes a long time. There's, there's a lot of background. There's a lot of context that you have to sort of figure out. Well, the same is true when you're sharing the gospel. That's my point here. I was getting to a point. Some folks have, have context. They have those prerequisites. They have that background, right? Maybe they grew up in a family that, that went to church, at least occasionally. Maybe they went on Easter or Christmas. Maybe they went to Catholic school or Christian school. Maybe they're, they're just really well-read and they've read parts of Scripture or they've read about theology or they've read different books that talk about it, right? But some folks don't. Some folks have none of that. Friends, more and more in our culture, I think we are actually looking like first century Roman Empire where there's no context for who this God is, for what this gospel is, for what the gospel is, for that matter, the word itself, that it's good news of Jesus Christ. That's why I think actually reading the early church, the very early church, is so helpful for Christians these days. So let me, let me do that. Let me borrow a very old illustration, uh, almost 2,000 years old. This was uh, told by a Christian who was actually from Asia Minor, from modern-day Turkey, who had moved all the way to Gaul, which is in the western part of the empire, now uh, France, really, uh, in the city of Lyon. He was a sort of missionary pastor, becomes a bishop. His name is Irenaeus. And Irenaeus uh, was writing against some of these false teachers. And he uses this story. He says, look, it's, it's a little bit like this. You keep, you keep getting it wrong. It's like if you have tesserae, these little uh, tile pieces. And um, you know that they're intended to make a mosaic of a king. But he said, what you're doing is you're manipulating them. You're reorganizing them. You're actually constructing a mosaic that is a fox or a dog, he says. And then you're telling people, look, it's the king, but you're false teachers. So let me extend his, his metaphor, his illustration, a, a little bit more. A puzzle illustration. You can tell we've been in lockdown, in quarantine. Jigsaw puzzles are out, and it's not even Christmas. Everywhere else Paul and Barnabas have been so far, 
they've been able to say, hey, remember, remember the picture on the box? Remember um, the puzzle that we're, we're trying to construct here? Remember how we were given a, a picture on the box from which to go by? And um, even if people have sort of forgotten that, they remind them and say, Let, let's read the, the prophets. Let's read the law again and see how it gives us a picture of what we're looking for in the Messiah, the King to come. And some places they'll say, look, you've got it sideways. You've sort of oriented it the wrong way. You've got to get it back up straight. Or, or maybe you've even got it upside down. Maybe it's completely flipped. You actually, you're trying to construct something that's completely wrong. You need to reorient it. And that's the image that we're talking about. That's the chosen Messiah. That's the king that we want to tell you about with this gospel message. But now, something has changed. Now, they've got their puzzle pieces. But there's no box. There's no background. There's no prerequisites. There's no context for these people in Lystra to understand what it is exactly, who this king is, who this God come down in human form is that Paul and Barnabas are talking about. And it's hard to make puzzles when you don't have the box and the picture on the box to know what you're trying to construct, isn't it? It's extremely hard. We have this puzzle at home. It's just a big Ziploc bag. And if you don't do it very often, you don't remember what the picture is, and it gets even harder and harder because you have nothing to look at, nothing to fix your eyes on. Add to this the fact that these people in Lystra aren't exactly blank slates. It's not like Paul and Barnabas come to them and say, hey, look, here's some puzzle pieces. Let's try to put it together. No, they already have some weird stuff going on. There's already sort of religious context and background. And so from the Scruggs family craft table, there's some buttons and some Lego. And let's see, oh, there's a corner piece. Oh, there's some googly eyes. There's probably some Play-Doh in here somewhere, right? There's a Greek pantheon of gods, a smorgasbord of gods, if you will. And all of this is sort of in the background that Paul and Barnabas are trying to speak truth of the one true God into. Now we see it isn't just that they have uh, puzzle pieces with no box, but they have all this other stuff in the mix. And so where do you start? Well, where do you start? with a puzzle. You start, you start with some anchors, right? You find those corner pieces. You put them where they're supposed to go in the corners and then you start with the, the edge pieces and you start building an outline of the puzzle. You try to get it framed somehow so there's some context so there's some sort of background, so there's some understanding of, of where the limits, where the borders are of this picture. And then you can work in to the image of the king at the center. The act of sharing the gospel it can be a puzzling thing, can't it? Yes, ho-hum. It's helpful to have strategies. It, it's really helpful to think through these things. By the way, do I think that Paul and Barnabas actually thought through this as they were going to Lystra, knowing that there was no synagogue there, knowing that there was no Jewish uh, men there, knowing that there was no background, no prerequisites? Absolutely they did. They talked about this a great deal. How then can we share the gospel with these people? But it wasn't just on their own strength. Do I think that they prayed for the Spirit's guidance and wisdom, absolutely. God, give me the words. Because I stumble over my words. I never know what words to say. I never know what words to reach for. God, I need you to speak in and through me. Both of these things held up to the maximum. Work at preparing. Work at thinking through. Work at strategies. Work at humbling ourselves before the Spirit. No Jewish context. No natural segue to Jesus and who Jesus is. But Paul and Barnabas recognize and they switch their approach. Did you notice this? They don't read the prophets and the law. 
The Lystrans would have had no idea what that was. They don't say, well, this is the promised Messiah. What promised Messiah? No, they, they build an outline. They find those anchors, those common human experiences from which to work from. I love the way Peterson paraphrases this in the message, right in the heart of this passage. He says, but even then, he didn't leave them without a clue. <laughs> For he made a good creation. He poured down rain and gave bumper crops. When your bellies were full and your hearts happy, there was evidence of good beyond your doing. There was evidence of good beyond your doing. Friends, God is nowhere without witness in His creation. And every single person on this earth can be pointed to that. Can be reminded of those corner pieces can be reminded that an outline can be built from that. And yes, we will get there. Give us time. Be patient. We will construct the full image of the King in due time, but we can start here. Paul, to the Roman church, right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. So here in Romans, he has a, a little bit of a sort of critical or negative side to it. Look, you're, you're without excuse. There's no excuse. You can look around, you can experience these things, and you can understand that there is good beyond your doing here. I love in our passage that he, he frames it positively you have not been left without clues. That all of this around you is witness to the one that we're talking about. The one true God. Another uh, early Christian, Justin Martyr, lived around just around the time of Irenaeus. He talked about how uh, all of these things, they're, they're seeds of truth or seeds of God's word everywhere in the world. Even in, in culture. Even in other religions, there, there are these seeds of truth in, in the goodness that God has created, that he has woven into the fabric of his creation. And we can pull these things out. These are points of contact as we're sharing the gospel message that we can affirm and we can say yes to. Yes, now let me tell you more. Now let me tell you where that leads. Rain in and out of season. Food to sustain you. Joy in your heart. My friend who's uh, an indigenous theologian, Ray Aldred, says, uh, why not start when you're talking to indigenous folks with the Creator? We all believe, even, even the most traditional of indigenous peoples will affirm, yes, of course, there is a great Creator. Yeah, that's right. This one true God, let me tell you about that Creator. Of course, Psalm 19, the whole psalm, but I'll just read Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. The heavens and the sky and the mountains. You don't think that Paul here in Lystra, just right by the way at the, at the foot of the Taurus Mountains in Asia Minor, mountains, plateaus, very much rolling hills, just sort of like Calgary's terrain. You don't think that he was pointing to those mountains when he was preaching this message? Look, you have not been left without a clue. There is good beyond your doing here. Reminds me a little bit of the story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. They decide to go camping, sort of outback camping. They're not, you know, in, in populated campsites. No, they're, they're going to pitch their tent under the stars. And so they go and they're really rural, really uh, no one around, and they pitch their tent and in the middle of the night, uh, Holmes wakes up and he's looking up at the stars. And he wakes Dr. Watson up and he says, Watson, look up. What do you deduce from what you see? Dr. Watson, wanting to impress the great Sherlock Holmes, thinks about it for a while and he says, I see millions and millions of stars. 
I see beautiful mountains and forests and streams. I see a vastness. I see uh, stars that probably have their own planets and have their own moons and so much more than we could ever see. And we are just these tiny little specks and how great this universe is. And surely there is a great God, a great designer beyond it. And he sort of looks at Holmes expecting to be praised for his deduction skills. And Holmes says, no, you fool. Someone's stolen our tent. All right, it's a bad joke. Martin Luther says, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in flowers and clouds and stars. Here's what I think Luther misses that, that Paul actually includes in Acts chapter 14. And in green curry and in the the kiss of my one-year-old, and in the warmth of a campfire on a summer night, and in the joy of community, even through tears, and through the hug of a friend, and through the beauty of a sport, there's good beyond our doing. Even here, when our bellies are full, when God brings rain in and out of season, even in the frozenness of Calgary winters, There is goodness beyond our doing. Don't get me wrong here. None of these things are God in themselves. And actually, all of these good things can turn very quickly to empty things, vain things. Things that we chase after, things that that we try to place our ultimate trust in, things that we try to place our ultimate value upon. They don't work that well for that. That's not what they've been created for. They're not the king at the center of the image. They're the outline. They're the framework. They're the things that push us in. They're the things that point us toward. All of these things can be used to become empires of dirt. Things that that just crumble, fall through our fingers. Or they can do what they were meant to do. Be these signposts be these guides, be these reminders in this world, this vast world, that there is a God who loves us, who cares for us, who is pursuing us, who has sent His Son, the King, to die for us. And we'll get there when we share the story. We have to get there. But we don't have to rush there. We can start with the anchors, with the corners, with the outline. We can start with what is right around us. God's good creation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for beauty. Truthfully, it doesn't make sense without you. Wonder more about why there is beauty than why there is anything at all. We thank you for full bellies. We thank you for friends and family. We thank you for your vast creation that leaves us in awe. May it always speak to your love. May we use it. May we enjoy it. May we bring people alongside us to help us see that it's your creation. It's in your son's name. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.